Amen. I hope you uh, recognize all the scripture references in that song, beginning out of Isaiah and uh, going forward, uh, forward from there. It's, uh, I don't know when's the last time I said it, but the loudest thing in this building that we like to hear is your voices. And uh, praise God, He's given you all wonderful, uh, wonderful voices as we sing and praise Praise our Lord. Worship is participatory. We believe in participatory worship. That means you pray when we pray. You, you sing. You meditate. You participate in the worship. Okay? And that's always been the case for the people of God. It's not just people up here that worship and do things to you. You participate in the worship. One of the major ways of doing that, of course, is singing. But we consider the preaching of the Word of God is also integral to worship because God's Word reveals Himself to us. And worship is a response of God revealing Himself to us. Turn to First Peter again with me this morning as we study the, the Lord's Apostle, Peter. And the words that the Lord has given him are truly uh, truly profound. And uh, I have a long introduction today. We're at verse 18. We're coming this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, where Peter begins to address various members of households. Slaves, wives, husbands. He addresses them in that order. And they're members of households. Now, it's hard for us to enter into this first century situation that believers in Jesus Christ found themselves in, especially in the predominant Gentile cities in which they were living. Once Christians became distinct from Judaism, they were a new religion on the block. (laughs) Strange people, different people, very different in those Gentile cities, and the Greco-Roman culture of that empire had what is called household codes. For centuries, the Greek moral philosophers wrote about the proper relationships within the household of slaves to masters, wives to husbands, children to their parents. And most households consisted of a husband, a wife, children, and household slaves. And the Greek moral philosophers wrote about those. We still have those written codes today that can be studied. There is extensive discussion as to how Peter and Paul's household codes relate to those of the Greco-Roman Empire. I'm not going to go into that, the details of that, They have significant things in common, but also significant differences, especially in regard to the foundation of the codes, (laughs) as to why you're doing what you're doing. It's significantly different, and not my intent to discuss all that here. However, those cultures knew what our culture has begun to deny. That is, that the healthy functioning of individual households was crucial for the stability and prosperity of the empire. 
they knew that. Even Plato, when he theorizes about his idealism of what a culture should be, he writes his household codes into his republic of what needs to be done. They all understood, these pagans all understood the vital importance of the household, husband, wife, children, and slaves in those cultures. How important that was for the prosperity of the empire and its stability. We, of course, have begun to deny that in almost every way imaginable and say it's just not necessary, okay? And we don't agree that it takes a village, okay? Some of you probably don't even know what I'm referring to, but we don't agree that it takes a village. It takes a family created by God and submitted to His wisdom. And uh, may God help us. So we're, we're hitting that type of a passage here in First Peter. See how he starts out there in verse 18. Servants, uh, be submissive to your masters with all fear, and not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. And we'll read more of this as we go. So he's going to begin with the servants. Now, Peter has an apologetic purpose in mind here. And we know that from chapter 2, verse 12. We know that Peter has this apologetic concern that Christian households do not give unbelievers an occasion to speak evil of the gospel. That's his concern. And Paul even expressed that, if you were listening to the Scripture reading, to Titus, that we don't give them an opportunity to speak evil of us. He says it right there in the middle of Titus chapter 2. That's his concern. There's an apologetic concern. In chapter 2, verse 12, he actually says we ought to strive for the opposite. In 2.12, he states that we should have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that they will observe our good works. The Greek and Roman unbelievers with their household codes can recognize this honorable conduct of Christian households. And brothers and sisters, though many in the world will mock and deny you as how you function as husband and wife and how you function with your children, yet (laughs) inside they will envy you. They will wish they could go to the grocery store with their three little kids when they observe you doing that, okay? They'll mock you for what you believe, but when they observe you at the grocery store with your three little children, they will envy you. Now, if they would bow down to God's wisdom, you know, it, you don't have to be a Christian for God's wisdom to work. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, He created us. And I'm not saying any of you have perfect households and, and we haven't had great trials and struggles within our household. Obviously, we do, okay? And that's why we're such desperate need of the grace of God. But... There is that apologetic concern here that we are living before the world and as the world observes us, they will observe the honorable behavior and they will acknowledge that. And of course, 
when we have an opportunity to explain how is it that we could do this, we're going to go straight to the gospel and explain, you know, but by the grace of God, there go we. Uh, We're not smarter than anybody else. It's just that we figured out who we ought to listen to. Correct? We figured out who we ought to listen to. Light has come into the world. That's the difference. So that's what's going on in this passage. Now, that was then. What about now? Well, the same remains true today. I've already saying that, especially as our culture continues to profess themselves to be wise in their own eyes and reject God's wisdom and laws in nearly every area of life, including family relationships and roles. We're casting off God's wisdom in all of these areas, and, and we're going to reap that as a culture. We are not, not going to. So this all remains true today. If our households look like the world's households, our gospel will be spoken evil of. Even the unregenerate expects that we behave different from them. Have you ever noticed that? You know, all the unconverted people you work around, if they know you're a believer, they don't expect you to behave like them. They have natural conscience. They know something of this, and they expect you to behave better than they do. It's really interesting to uh, to see that, but they do. And they should, right? They should, based on what we what we profess. We should be like Jesus. They don't know a lot, but if we profess to believe and follow Jesus, in our Western culture, at least still, there's still some knowledge of who Jesus is in our Western culture. Now, if you're a missionary, sometimes you're in cultures where there isn't any knowledge of that, but in our Western culture, there's still some knowledge of who Jesus is, and the unbeliever expects us to be like him. And it's a blessing when God uses us and enables us to do that. And that would include acknowledging our sins also. So, we don't desire the gospel to be spoken evil of. We want to adorn the doctrine of the gospel. That's one of Paul's favorite phrases in Titus chapter 2. You know, why should we respect these authority relationships? Well, to adorn the doctrine, to make the doctrine look beautiful. Okay, our job as in our lives and in our families is to make the doctrine of the gospel beautiful. Isn't that amazing? That's Paul's expression, not Peter's, but we read it in the scripture reading. That you might adorn the doctrine. So, you know, I ask about my life. Does my life make the doctrine look beautiful? Or does my life make the doctrine look, (laughs) you know? Think about that. That's our calling. That's our motive. Indeed, the gospel enables us to submit to authority and even return good for evil in many situations. And such behavior is modeling Jesus himself. When we endure evils, as Peter exhorts us to do here, We are modeling Christ. We are imaging Christ. When we do what this passage is going to begin to tell us to do, we are imaging Christ. How are the unbelievers going to see Christ? Through your life and the Word of God. That's it. 
Jesus isn't coming back down here to, to live among us as He did for those 33 years. No. You and I are now living down here under His Lordship and blessing. And they are going to see who Jesus really is by how you and I live and through the Word of God. That's it. That's it. That's, that's an awesome, scary thing to think about that. But we are to image and model Christ. And Peter is going to give us a lot of that here in chapter 2. He's going to spend a whole bunch about this submission of slaves to their masters. And that's going to vector him right into behaving as Jesus behaved is, is what he's going to do here. That's how Christ is on display. More background material here. The Greek term used in verse 18... Uh, my translation reads, Servants, be submissive to your masters. The Greek term used there is oiketis, relating to house, and it refers to a servant in a household. And oikos means house, and those words are related that way. A servant in a household who would have been a slave in the same sense as the Greek word doulos. So this passage is referring to slavery. Make no doubt about that. And even that term that's used here, the oikites, is they were slaves. They were household slaves. They labored and worked more immediately in connection in the household and for the household as opposed to out on the fields and that kind of stuff. But they certainly were slaves. Uh, serving in the households, almost like a member of the family. Slavery is compulsory labor and dependency, and regarding another person as property, and thus having the right of buying or selling the person as you would other objects and animals. That's what slavery is. The practice is a clear violation of the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's a clear violation of Christ's teaching to do unto others as you would have done unto yourselves. And we're not going to get into the whole discussion about the matter of slavery or of all that, but I will certainly say those things. At one time, as many as 25% of the Roman Empire's population belonged to the slave social class. That's one out of every four persons in the Roman Empire were slaves. And slavery was not confined to any one ethnic group. People became slaves as prisoners of war. They ended up in the condition of slavery. Israel herself ended up as slaves in Egypt. And Israel ended up as slaves in Babylon also. They ended up in slavery as condemned men and criminals you could end up into slavery through debt. You legally forced to be sold as a slave to pay your debts. Some sold themselves into slavery to get out of abject poverty. People would much rather 
be the slave of a, a good household that could put food on the table and people would sell themselves in the slavery to get out of abject poverty or to obtain entrance into the Roman Empire. For one of the gates into becoming a Roman citizen was through the route of slavery, actually. People would do that. Or for other reasons. Others were kidnapped and being sold into slavery. Parents sometimes sold their children into slavery. And of course, many were born into slavery. Once you became into that class of social class of being a slave and you bore children in that condition, your children would automatically be slaves and be the property of whoever was the owner of mom and or dad. Uh, And they were born into slavery. Some slaves owned their own property and even owned other slaves. So all of that is is going on uh, here in the Roman Empire. Slaves could be and were freed through various means. And by the first century A.D., under Roman law, a person generally could generally count on being set free by the age of 30. You could generally get out of the institution if you so desired. Many slaves did not so desire because the basic necessities of life may have been way worse uh, getting out of their slavery position. And that would, that would vary, of course, having a lot to do with what your masters were like and so forth. But there was a way out and uh, generally by the age of 30 a person could be set free. A slave might be permitted to buy his freedom with a sum of money if somehow he could raise that money. Certain individuals who had money helped other slaves get bought out by giving the slave enough money so that he could buy his way out of being enslaved. And often slaves were set free by a master's last will. When a master wrote his last will as to where all his possessions are going, uh, some of them would, would not will their slaves to others, but set them free. Those, of course, were showing some degree of an enlightened conscience about the matter, and they wouldn't will their slaves over to their sons and daughters. They would set them free as opposed to willing them as though they were a piece of, of property. So that, that's kind of the environment that the historians have helped us uh, reconstruct. Roman laws did not protect slaves from the cruelty and abuses of their masters. They had no rights. Slaves had no rights, had no governmental protections against severe mistreatment and abuse. And that, of course, took place. Public opinion, however, often asserted itself as a kind of restraint at times upon intolerable unfairness and cruelty. And as we read our Bibles, the question comes up, should we translate the Greek term doulos as servant or slave in the New Testament?
A third option has been to use the expression bond servants. And if you think about it, you'll, okay, <laughs> that means slave. That's been a third option in some translations. Well, in 1 Timothy 6.1, the expression under the yoke is a clear reference to being in a state of slavery. Under the yoke. That is, a yoke was what was put on animals by their owners. And animals were not free. They were under the yoke. Okay. There were slaves who had been freed, but continued as hired servants. Paid servants must have been common, at least in Palestine, because Jesus refers to paid servants in his parables. But the word there is not doulos, paid servants. There's a third word there. It's not paid doulos. Okay, it's a different term, because slaves aren't paid, right? It's not paid Doulos, no. It's, a, it's another Greek term for serving or servant, paid servants. Onesimus was an oikites. Onesimus was a household servant, but he was owned by Philemon. Onesimus was a slave. So it would be an improvement to our English Bibles if doulos was translated slave. For surely that's what most, if not all, Greek speakers would understand the term to mean. And it's an interesting discussion going back into the history of our English Bibles. I'll just plant the seed as to why it was not translated that way. So that would be an improvement. Some newer versions have have actually begun to do that. Or at least a footnote, the term servant, to where you can find that we're really talking about slavery and slaves. Now, beginning now with verse 18, let's consider the command, Slaves, be submissive to your masters. None of us here this morning are in a master-slave relationship that's described here. None of us are. However, when we enter into commitments to render our service to others for a wage, I would say these commands apply to us. When we enter into a commitment to render our service to others, I would say these commandments are applicable. Obviously, you can quit your job if you have another one lined up. God doesn't promise you, you know, a job that is all, you know, sweet. Genesis 3, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. What does that say? That says that you are going to have to strain and sweat just for the basic necessities. Eat bread. And I believe that common grace so often has backed off the curse. What is the expression? I have never, in my entire life, I've never experienced what Genesis 3.15 describes. I've never had to actually exert all the strength I have just to provide the necessities for myself and my family. Never had to do that. And my explanation 
of that is simply common grace. God's curse is really pushed back. He, he didn't fully, he hasn't fully implemented that curse. Not on many of us. Other parts of the world, it's very real. You know, our experience, both as Christians and as humans, is uncommon when we think of the world in its entirety. And we become ungrateful, which is not a good thing. So, uh, how do we get off on all that? Slaves, be submissive to your masters. I, I think none of us are in that situation, but it applies when we make commitments to render our service or labors for a wage. It applies to us. We become hired servants under authority, under the authority of the one we've agreed to labor for. We're, we're under that authority. But we are in a vastly easier situation than, than we read about in the pages of the New Testament. And, and that, of course, easier situation is not true of our brothers and sisters in many other parts of the world today. Sadly, slavery, slavery as described here, still exists in many places on the globe. It's not uncommon. Slaves, be submissive to your masters. What does this mean? It means do the will of the one whose authority you are under. Whatever their title be, do the will of the authority of the one you are under. It's that that simple. You need to find out who that person is and what they expect and want you to be doing. And then pursue the task. And as other passages say, pursue it wholeheartedly. Pursue it whatever strength and gifts you have been given. Be submissive to your masters. You know, your supervisor might be delightfully surprised if sometimes you express to him or her, I want to be sure I understand what you want me to do. Those people are so wonderful to supervise. (laughs) Those that say, I want to be sure that I got this straight, that I'm doing what you want me to do. Okay. Then there's others that they'll never ask that question. (laughs) And you say, yeah, I need to check twice a day, you know, that John over here is really doing what I've asked him to do. You you need not to be like John, okay? <laughs> You're called to be like that other person that lets the master know whatever the authority is, is that you want to know. You want to you want to be sure that you're doing what the authority over you is calling you and asking you to do. So, uh you should do that as a believer. And then pursue the task. Here's another one. <laughs> If you you can delight your supervisor this way too. If you completed your assigned task and it's only like 3.30, not all jobs are like this, but some of them are. You know, you got all your work done at 3.30, but you've agreed to work for eight hours. You know, you don't just hang low for the next hour and a half. You, you go to your supervisor and say, hey, I'm done. What else do you have for me to do? Yeah, that, that, that's what we're called to do. 
ask what's next. One Christian waitress really got into trouble with her co-workers because when things got really slow in the restaurant, she started wiping off the salt and pepper shakers. And her co-workers really, don't do that, (laughs) got down on her for doing that. See the difference? There's a difference. There's a difference. Slaves, be submissive to your masters. Your natural disposition should be toward submission, not resistance. If you're following Christ, your bent should be toward, I'm going to follow the authority that I've committed to be under. You gave your word when you made that commitment to work for a certain hired wage. That's a commitment that you have made. And part of that commitment is you're hired in there to work under the authority of whatever structure they have there. And that's, that's what we should do. It's much easier for us than our brothers, sisters in the New Testament. If submission is your disposition, you will initiate to find out if you are doing what is desired of you. Okay. Now Peter goes on, and that's the easy part. We've done the easy stuff. <laughs> and uh, uh, Peter's not done. <laughs> to whom does Peter's phrase apply? Uh, submit, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Well, Maybe this will be easier than you think. (laughs) To whom does that phrase apply? With all fear. Our first thought often is that Peter is exhorting slaves to submit to their masters with all fear. Then this fear is described as having a high degree of respect and reverence for one's master. However, Peter's phrase, with all fear, could be referring to God. And the NIV translation actually does translate that way. And I'm going I'm to defend that translation here. Slaves in reverent fear of God. It's a dynamic equivalent, so they inserted God, but I believe that's correct. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your own masters. You see, Peter's all fear makes it a very strong statement. With all fear. The immediate context can support that the fear of God is intended. In the preceding verse, we are commanded to fear God and honor the king. Thus, we are not even called to fear the king. So how can we now be called to render all fear to an earthly master? Peter makes that distinction. Fear God. What? Honor the king. Peter doesn't even call us to fear the king. Much less all fear. So how can we be now called to all fear the master? That doesn't fit. And in the immediately following verse, we have a significant statement. If because of conscience toward God, 
See that? That's fearing God. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So that is another expression of fearing God. Conscience toward God means we fear God more than anyone else. So we are aware that God requires this submission of us because of conscience toward God. We're aware that God requires that we be submissive to our masters. We are submitting with all fear to God. God ultimately is the master we are concerned to obey. And in verse 16, Peter has said, we are slaves of God. He's already said that in verse 16. We are slaves of God. So, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3.22, bondservants, slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. <laughs> Paul's statement is explicitly clear in Colossians 3.22. We obey in all things those masters according to the flesh, do it with sincerity of heart, fearing God, Colossians 3.22. Grammatically, Peter David states, quote, that this reference or fear is directed to God, not to the masters, is indicated by the facts that, one, the phrase comes before the reference to the masters in the Greek word order, and two, Fear or reverence in First Peter is always directed toward God, never toward people whom Christians are not to fear. Thus, the motive for the submission and service is not primarily their respect for their masters, but their respect for God, who receives the services as if it were done to him and whose name is honored by their good behavior. End quote. I'm not a grammarian, but Peter Davids certainly is. So I think there's quite a few things that come together there, uh, that the all fear is regarding God, uh, both contextually and the grammatical argument that Davids and others put that forth too. He's not the only one, so... So, back to the original matter. We are told the attitude which should underlie our submission. Fearing God should underlie the attitude of our submission to our earthly masters. Just as we were urged to submit to the authorities of the state as slaves to God, and that's what verse 16 is about. We submit to the authority of the state as slaves to God. So too, in this sphere, a Christian sees his heavenly Father behind every earthly master. See that? We see our heavenly Father behind every earthly master. And we know that we must obey God. And that means obeying the earthly master. That's the attitude.
This attitude revolutionizes the Christian slave's behavior more than any Greco-Roman household code could ever do, could ever motivate. It does. What's taught here revolutionizes the believer's relationship to authority in a way that no Greco-Roman household, house, household, house code could, could ever do. Gets harder. <laughs> We're like climbing a big mountain in this passage. We, we really are. So we're climbing up to another step now. Submission is required even to harsh or unreasonable or unjust masters. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. This is a hard pill for us to swallow. Man. Especially if you're raised in the 60s and 70s. Doesn't matter. If it's authority, don't ask any questions. Just resist. <laughs> Period. Authority is a dirty word. Just resist. Doesn't matter. This is a hard pill to swallow. Peter urges our submission not only to the good and the gentle authorities, but also to those that are harsh or unjust. However, the reason for submitting in such situations is transcendent. We become like Christ. And I'll read the rest of the passage in a moment. The reason for submitting is transcendent. We Become like Jesus. That's the line of argumentation he's going to pursue. You want to be like Jesus? Yes, yes, I want to be like... Okay! (laughs) Here's how you can be like Jesus. You can submit to harsh and unjust masters. I didn't realize that's what it means to be like Jesus. Well, you know, maybe you haven't read your New Testament enough. (laughs) Maybe you've been picking and choosing. (laughs) But there's a vision here. There's a vision here, brothers and sisters. The vision here is being like Jesus. And we image Him to the world around us. What is Jesus like? Oh, I'll tell you what he's like. You know, the other day, our master was so harsh and unreasonable. I don't hold it against him. I still served as best as I could. I did him good, even though he treated me harshly and unreasonable. And and I did him good. That's what Jesus is like, my fellow slave. That's what he's like a million times over. That's what he's like. See that? That's how this would be playing out. 
if you found yourself as a Christian and a slave at that point. That's what it would look like. We image him. Now let's read. We'll read from 2.18 down through verse 21. Which places this command to submit to the harsh authorities into the context of being like Jesus, which God highly commends. Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable before God, for this is commendable before God, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? And that's not commendable. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. <laughs> oh. For to this you were called. To suffer wrongfully and to take it patiently when you do. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow His steps. Wow! Christ suffered unjustly, and we are to follow His steps. And being in these situations is an opportunity to follow His steps. Get that? Let me say that again. Being in these situations is a massive opportunity to follow Jesus Christ. Now, that's exciting, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you want to do that. If you are a Christian, you want to follow Jesus. Jesus' apostle is laying it right out here. These are opportunities for you to follow him. And I like the word transcendent. It's really applicable. You can hear the echoes. In Peter's writing, you can hear the echoes of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 5. Luke 6, 27 and 28, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. You hear that echo in Peter's teaching? Absolutely. Luke 6, 32, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? 
Peter even uses that expression. Jesus says, what credit is that to you? Peter uses that expression right here. Did you catch that? For what credit is it? If when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. Peter even uses the same expression that Jesus uses. For what credit is it, Jesus says, for what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners... Do the same. So, I'll wrap up by saying this. This passage in 1 Peter, with its roots into Luke 6 and Matthew 5, could be the most ethically difficult passage in the New Testament. To do this. I think it is. Luke 6, Matthew 5 reflected here in this passage in 1 Peter 2, could be the most ethically difficult commands that we as Christians are called to practice. And it's not hard to see why. What we are urged to do is definitely Christ-like in a big way. So it doesn't surprise us. Peter could write this because he observed Christ behave in these ways many times. Peter saw this on display over and over again, climaxing in the cross itself. And Peter writes of himself uh, in chapter 5, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, Peter describes himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He witnessed the Lord Jesus do all of this. Grappling with these exhortations is like standing in front of El Capitan in Yosemite. You're standing there, you know, and you're like you're like a little you're smaller than a pebble. Standing in front of El Capitan, and someone says, climb to the top. (laughs) Climb to the top. That's what it feels like. And that's fine. Jesus climbed El Capitan, and he says, follow me. Follow me, and I'll make an El Capitan climber out of you. He does. That's what he says. He climbed it. And he says, follow me. I'll make an El Capitan climber out of you. That's the gospel. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, as as we study this wonderful passage of Scripture from your apostle, and he displays you, Lord Jesus, in such a clear and spectacular way. First, we give you thanks that, Lord, you've uh, redeemed us to conform us to your image. Oh, Lord, we feel overwhelmed at times. 
Lord, you know how many times we've done the opposite of, of the things we've said here this morning. We've returned evil for evil. Sometimes we've returned evil for good. Lord, we thank you for your blood and forgiveness. We know that you, you forgive us first, and then you change us. Lord, we pray for your church and your churches uh, throughout the world and our nation that we would not compromise with your word, that you would lift us up to it rather than us hiding from it. What a blessing we have, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We commit ourselves to you, and you know better than we. We don't know how to pray at times. But Lord, thank you for committing yourself to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.